this is Grace Lynn Keller with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, and today I am joined by two wonderful healthcare professionals. First, we have Dr. Peter Papadakos, who is the Director of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Rochester, among many other things, and Robert Gladder, who is the Editor-at-Large for Medscape Emergency Medicine and an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine with Northwell Health. So thank you two both for joining me today, um, and I'll have you guys introduce yourselves as well and talk a little bit about your careers before we get started. All right, um, I'm, I'm Dr. Peter Papadakos. I'm with the University of Rochester. I'm Director of Critical Care Medicine. I've been practicing in the ICUs here since 1988. And over the last post-pandemic period, we've noticed uh, problems with recruiting, hiring staff, including nurses, technologists, x-ray techs, uh, respiratory therapists, all forms of licensed health professionals, which has greatly impacted the entire American health system. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. Um, my name is Robert Gladder. I serve as editor-at-large for Medscape Emergency Medicine. I'm also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Northwell Health and a contributor to Forbes Healthcare. Um, I'm in agreement with Peter that this has been an ongoing problem um, with staffing that's uh, developed even prior to the pandemic. Uh, but leading into it, um, we, were we were hopefully unprepared uh, for what was coming our way. Uh, most what we saw most, you know, visibly was that there was just a shortage of staff, and this was um, at many levels, but primarily in, the, in nursing, but also um, in, impacting respiratory therapists, radiology techs, and you know, suddenly um, with the pandemic, we were faced with, um, you know, an unknown disease with its impact certainly causing massive numbers of, of disability and death, and so. You know, uh, we had uh, coming in, you know, uh, levels of burnout, frustration, um, certainly throughout the country. Um, and this is echoed, obviously, in many reports that we know of. Um, but what we didn't know was that there would be this mass exodus of staff that would leave our hospitals um, with a significant shortfall and unable to really function and function well. So this in turn led to closing many units of hospitals, emergency departments, cutting down operating room staff, ICU staff, um, you know, leading to um, further outpatient um, uh, loss of staff as well, which you, know, you can't run a hospital system and run healthcare without people. That's the basis of how we run organizations. And without people, you cannot have a viable organization. So. What we have now are lots of temporary staff, and the temporary staff are new to the system. They're not familiar with protocols uh, in an exquisite way that um, our team-based care really um, is based upon. And that's how hospitals typically have run with team-based care, where it's not just you know, a physician, but we depend on so many other people within the health system, uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, res uh, you know, radiology techs. We have um, managers who are also part of the team um, from social work to um, also, you know, nursing care managers. So it, it's a large team that's been affected overall. So I'll let Peter dive in here and, you know, describe what his um, situation was and in, in going into the pandemic. You know, I, 
as as Bob has reiterated, you know, we had a three-tier system. We had burnout during the pandemic. We had some nursing staff and other allied health professionals that retired because they were afraid they had medical comorbidities. Then we also had a fall off in students that went into, you know, we went to Zoom in the professional schools. So there wasn't that June graduating class that came uh, in. And on top of that, uh, as you know, there were uh, vaccine requirements and some people just for whatever reason did not want to get the vaccine and left the field. So we were left all throughout the United States, shortfalls that affected every uh, aspect of healthcare from ambulatory to inpatient to ICU to operating room. And Bob alluded to, uh, to this, we in the hospitals, we have learned over the last three decades that a team care approach is how we do things the best. So we have spent time doing simulations. We spend time learning you know, various subtleties of how people like things like attendings and nurses, how we approach various disease processes. And through this introduction of temporary staff, we have lost that entire team approach, which has been shown to decrease mortality, morbidity, and provide safe care. So one of the things that I also think has occurred is we've had a decay in patient safety because we've lost that team approach. We have uh, uh, circulating nurses in the operating room that have not, never done a, a transplant, or we have uh, in other hospitals, highly complex robotic surgery that they've never done it. They don't know how to set up the room. There's problems with interactions. So, and also we've lost the ability of reporting, uh, you know, close calls, you know, through various reporting things, because temporary staff that's going to be with, with a hospital for six weeks, eight weeks is not going to go through the robust in-servicing that staff, new hirees get over a course of a month or two at Orient and do one-to-one, -one, because there is pressure to keep that bed open. And that locums, and I'll use that term locums, the temporary staff member, no matter what kind of health professional they are, has to be at that bedside as fast as possible because it is not cost effective. We've also noticed that throughout the United States, that when you hire locums, which are being paid at a higher pay rate than your baseline staff, and may have various benefits through the agencies that they work with, such as housing, temporary housing, rental cars, meal, meal allowances, that whatever staff you still had left in your, in your hospital gets upset and says, how come these people are making many multiples uh, more than I am? And I think that was very much reinforced in the national media with the nursing uh, strike that occurred in New York City, where all these kind of issues came out from the, from the membership nurses. And, and nurses and, and staff members have lost the connection with their employer. And, you know, there's no back and forth anymore. You know, we need to respect our healthcare providers. We need to respect and compensate the people that work with us on a daily basis, a fair and equitable raise. They shouldn't be looking at somebody who's there temporarily, who's making three times the, the hourly rate 
and getting all these other extra benefits. So I think there's also a breakdown in morale. And all throughout the United States, another thing that has been reported in Becker's and other uh, things is hospital systems are closing hospitals because they cannot maintain the pay of these temporary staff. You know, uh, internationally known medical centers to small rural hospitals are in financial straits. And you see that reported in all the medical newsletters, such as the one uh, you all uh, produce Becker's. But in the other ones that this hospital is closed, you know, in Atlanta, they lost the second largest hospital in downtown, the only other level one trauma center in Atlanta, Georgia, a major city. Obviously, Grady, which is the, the system that now is uh, left open is going to be so overwhelmed that it's going to cause problems and again affect patient care mortality morbidity and outcomes yeah having trained at emory and, and been familiar with the old grady system uh before it was um uh, redone I, and i certainly can attest to that and the loss of um you know such a facility is certainly going to lead to you know poor patient outcomes morbidity uh, I think the fallout from this is, is going to be immense in the Atlanta metro area. There's no question. Um, I think just to add to some additional points that, you know, in terms of, of having beds available, well, you can even, have, you know, you have a bed available, but if you don't have the staff to really, you know, you know, take care of a patient for that bed, that's really the ultimate issue. And that's what we're, you know, we're, we're focused on. And there's so many factors that weigh into, you know, having enough staff and, you know, look, Hospitals are bleeding money. Their margins are slim. And the big factor in this is salary. And they're paying locums significant amounts of money in order to staff facilities. And so the question is, how do you stem the tide? Um, you know, in some ways, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, investing in people and recognizing the importance of people and paying them a fair wage, as Peter's alluded to. Um, you know, look, a lot of hospitals are very top heavy with the C-suite. Um, you know, that's sort of the elephant in the room here, but I think at some levels, you know, the leadership needs to take a look at, you know, the salaries and make appropriate adjustments and redistribute some of the wealth in, in, in the system in terms of, of what they're paying. Um, you know, look, persons who um, perform activity levels from medical assistants, respiratory therapists, nurses, physicians, you know, there's there's a general discontent that, you know, the C-suite, you know, the investment there certainly is important to operations. But I think, you know, in, in many places, it's, it's you know, unequal and just basically needs to change. And I think this has been something that has been on the minds of so many employed physicians in large healthcare systems. And I think Peter would, you know, attest to this, um, this fact. Yeah, it, it, it's all over the country. Uh, you know, people have dissatisfaction. You know, they, and the other thing is uh, what occurred post pandemic. Many health systems got the healthcare dollars from the pandemic from the uh, from the various legislature, and instead of investing it with thanking employees that did extra duty, massive hours, shortfalls of the uh, equipment not a proper, uh, you know, a, a, a protective equipment, what have you, many, many long hours that we all spent taking care of COVID patients, they suddenly said, oh my God, we got all this money, we need to build a new building. You know, 
Right. You know, there's many unwise decisions that were made. And I think all of them have come to roost over the last year to year and a half, where you hear about health systems losing tens of millions of dollars, sometimes close to half a billion dollars, having no staff, browning out beds, closing down pediatrics, closing down OBGYN, closing down satellite clinics because they can't staff them. And, you know, I, obviously there were some mistakes made, but we need to go into this with a plan on how do we repair this damage? Because quite honestly, and I think Bob does emergency medicine, I do critical care. If there is another ro uh, robust pandemic of an infectious disease, such as we had in COVID-19, the hospitals are at near breaking point now will be completely overwhelmed. And there are obviously a lot of issues happening within the hospital systems. My, my question is, how do we pivot from here and fix this issue so that we can spring back and, and rebuild the system so that we are stronger and we are able to care for the patients? I think part of the main issue is certainly we've discussed investing in people in order to recognize and retain staff. Um, also increasing salaries um, and looking where inequalities exist in salary structures in large healthcare systems. Uh, I think recognizing that and trying to make changes would make people and workers, healthcare workers, um, more invested in working for any particular healthcare system, especially one that looks takes a better look under the hood, so to speak, in terms of salary redistribution, in terms of, of, of worth, of what each person is doing and contributing to the system. Certainly incentivizing people is something that's important too. I mean, a lot of healthcare systems do this already, but I think it needs to be done on a larger scale. Um, not just economic um, you know, aspects, but more time off, flexibility and scheduling, um, you know, and persons that you know, can, can have different shift starts and times, things of that nature that would be helpful. But also, you know, uh, trying to reduce locums dependency and to you know, pull back the curtain and you know, try to you know, in some ways, put efforts in, in again in recognizing that we can't you know pay out this kind of money to these agencies and healthcare systems, which certainly are predominant now and employ the bulk of people in healthcare, have to really again do a deep dive and and look at these things. I think the other thing is that hospital at home is another growing trend that can help decrease costs. Um, and increased growth in some ways. I mean, I think hospitals are looking at this, this model, which is really new um, in, in terms of, you know, you know reducing um, patients that need to be in the hospital with mild disease that could certainly be managed in the home with mild COPD exacerbations, um, patients who have um, possibly DVTs and PEs that can be monitored that are stable in the home setting. Um, Another area that can be looked at is pharmacy. Uh, there have been multiple layoffs of late of pharmacy technicians. Uh, many hospital, hospitals and healthcare systems are trying to reduce staff in this aspect, but really it makes the pharmacist's job much worse. And I think that looking at this aspect of layoffs um, of techs, which are critical to pharmacy function, is really um, you know, penny-wise and pound-foolish. And I think that, that, that aspect needs to really be re-examined. Um, and I'll kick it off to Peter. 
Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with Bob that we need to be more equitable in terms of salaries for our staffs, but we also have to give them packages that are much better. Daycare available in the workplace, uh, educational credit. Some health systems offer it, others don't in terms of getting a, a, a more advanced degree. Uh, all kinds of flexible scheduling. You know, you tell somebody, a new hiree, you have to work nights for six months. You know, that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear something that you, no one sits down and negotiates with them in terms of uh, things. And again, Bob brought up this point of, we need to take better care of people at home. One of the biggest shortfalls that we have in, in the United States is we do not have a robust visiting nursing program. If you think hospitals are shorthanded with nursing staff, they're, they're, you know, there's no visiting nurses, there's no satellite clinics. You know, there, we, we have a, a, a major shortfall. One of the things Bob and I found interesting when we started talking about this and writing about this is the lack of knowledge by our government leaders and the general public. You would think that political leaders, elected officials would be interested in knowing that the hospital down the street, which provides critical care, emergency care, surgery, what have you, is going to close, right? And systems are closing all over the United States. And we don't hear anything from our elected officials or any interest in how they can help address uh, the staffing and financial problems of hospitals. You know, nobody's talking about bailouts or anything along those lines, but maybe we should relook at reimbursement for services and try to find a more equitable way of reimbursing for health services. But, uh, you know, both of us found it was incredible the lack of, you would think, you know, I, I'll just use this as an example. There are many super premier hospitals, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Mass General, they're all losing money. Wouldn't you think somebody would be interested that the, the pinnacle of healthcare in the United States is financially crippled? Right, and I think that's, that's sort of you know, the icing on the cake here because you know, these are premier institutions and if they're bleeding money, we're not just talking rural hospitals, we're talking about large urban institution, institutions that are regarded highly regarded and you know if these if these facilities are having problems and end up reducing services and close where do we go from here you know as we say in the, in the piece the answer is bleak but we can turn things around there's things we can do um, to address this and and one of the biggest things as peter mentions is is to have our leaders address the issue to say that the the, the lights are blinking they're flashing red we need to wake up you know, we, this is a national emergency, but no one seems to be paying attention. And the question is, why not? And this piece hopefully sparks some interest, at least among leadership, at large healthcare institutions, and also in the government, to really pay attention to what's going on here. Um, I think national healthcare is in crisis, and we really need to pay attention. You know, one of the facts that we have in New York State, I think uh, our health association, hospital association of New York State pointed out that 87% of the hospitals in New York State are in financial straits, right? 
if a large percentage of hospitals close in New York State, where do the patients go? Where will they get health care? Let's say there is another pandemic. But even other chronic diseases, if I can't get my endoscopy for rule out colon cancer or my breast surgery for uh, a, a breast cancer uh, or orthopedic care. And if, if as, as Bob said, the premier institutions are unable to staff and are losing money. What happens to the majority of the hospitals where the general public does get healthcare? We're talking about the 100 to 150 bed hospitals scattered all over the United States that are in worse shape than the premier institutions that sometimes are able to recruit people because of their reputation or some of the services they provide. But I, I've been talking to people in rural hospitals all throughout the Northeast and California and uh, North, uh, Northwest area, rural hospitals, which are one, A, providing healthcare for a community, but also in many respects, the economic engine of a, of, of a town, you know, through the salaries of the people that work there. If that closes, the people can't get healthcare. You know, it is not, it is not a wise idea that somebody has to drive 75 miles or 100 miles to get obstetrical care when they're in labor. You know, that, you know, I, I foresee that happening in some areas of the United States as these hospitals close. Uh, the other thing is nursing homes. Nursing homes don't have any staff. So then there's a bottleneck in the, ice, in the hospitals where we can't send people for rehab or placement in the skilled nursing facility because they're not able to recruit staff even worse than hospitals. So it's a complete breakdown. As, as Bob said, this is a major crisis. The, you know, the lights are blinking red and, and nobody is even addressing it. You know, uh, why is Congress not talking about it? Our state legislature, our governor, our mayor, our president, vice president, what have you, you know, uh, if, if the entire health system is falling apart, having insurance that you can't use is not going to help you. You know, uh, it, it's a major, major crisis. Absolutely. And, and look, if you walk into any given hospital, talk to my colleagues, the hospitals are, are full. Patients, the boarding crisis is worse than ever. Um, you know, the, the number of respiratory viruses is on, is on the downswing. And the question is, why are our hospitals still full? Why are we boarding so many patients? Part of the answer lies in patients are sicker. The, the acuity, to some extent, is higher than, than we've seen maybe even pre-pandemic. And, you know, people that didn't get care, that now are presenting for care, um, patients with chronic illness, also ethnic and racial disparities are part of this. Patients that were unable to you know, get care, obtain insurance, um, possibly in high deductible plans that have delayed care, be, you know, until they really absolutely need it. So they're flooding hospital emergency departments. And so all of us are looking at this and, you know, we don't know where this ends, um, but we definitely need people to step up, address the issue. We, this is a national crisis. This is not localized to one small area of the country. This is throughout the country. And I think making this a national issue, as Peter says, drawing attention to this through congressional hearings, 
having our legislators, having our uh, healthcare leadership form a, a panel, a consensus, some way to make this a national point of discussion. So much for joining me today. Um, I think that you've hit on a lot of really important points and. I think that now from here, we need to start focusing on this issue so we can rebuild and make sure that our hospitals are fully staffed. And, and I think Becker's is a good, because Becker's is written, uh, read by many people, is a good uh, launching point for this. But again, there should be some pressure. We, you know, Bob and I thought somebody would read about this in Time Magazine and some legislator type person uh, or congressman or senator or local person would reach out to us and say, is this really happening? And it's a very easy answer. You talk to anybody who works in a hospital anywhere in the United States, they're short staffed. The emergency room has borders. This is everywhere. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for calling attention to the issue. Thank you. Thank you so much.